When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In my own life, I have found that I try not to wait for a crisis in order to feel like I can be vulnerable with the people that I love in my life. And I think the reason for that is if you wait until that true crisis moment, you've built up this huge wall that's really hard to break down. We as a, as a world experience such profound change. I think it's important for us to always remind ourselves that those shifts might come and they might be really unexpected and that's okay. Hello everyone, today is August 26th and to dive into how to navigate the most difficult challenges we may face in life through decision-making and changes. I wanna bring light and take a moment to recognize Women's Equality Day, which happens to also fall on my birthday. Women's Equality Day is celebrated in the U.S. on August 26th to commemorate the 1920 adoption of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which prohibits the states and the federal government from denying the right to vote to citizens of the U.S. on the basis of sex. Yes, that is a wordy, wordy topic, but it is a very important day in our history. And yet the work still continues. You know, right now we are all watching what is happening in Afghanistan and what the Taliban takeover will mean for girls and women's rights. It's horrific to see that we are still in a place to stand up for our basic needs, basic needs such as education, work, and so much more, which means it is vital that we take the time to acknowledge how our voices can impact and really make a difference worldwide. As someone who speaks so openly on the importance women for women have, I want to present you with a Maya Angelou quote. Each time a woman stands up for herself, she stands up for all women. Now, the theme of Women's Equality Day travels across so many aspects of our lives, politically, economically, sexually, physically, and on and on. So I really want to take a moment to acknowledge my passion and appreciation for the work so many of us are doing in the body positive movement. Now, we talk so often on the importance in not allowing our bodies to define us, yet giving us the right to celebrate our bodies in whatever way feels most authentic to you. You are powerful in your story, in your authenticity, and in your voice to stand up for oneself. Now, my guest today was on a path to becoming a concert violinist, attending Juilliard, and training under some of the best when an accident ended that life forever. She was faced with a loss of her entire sense of self. She struggled to find a new life, which led her to become one of the most preeminent cognitive scientists on earth, who founded and served as chair of White House Behavioral Science Team, who served as the first behavioral science advisor to the United Nations under Ban Ki-moon, I can't wait to have this conversation. Welcome, Dr. Shankar. Thanks so much for having me, Haley. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, as we start every episode, the first thing I like to ask my guests is if you were to check in with yourself right here, right now, what would you find? 
I think I'm doing pretty well. Um, I think I would find a lot of excitement and curiosity in myself right now because uh, I'm sure you've had a similar experience, but I've completely fallen in love with podcasting, uh, making my new show A Slight Change of Plans, which is all about how people have navigated extraordinary changes in their lives. Um, People like Hillary Clinton and Tiffany Haddish and Casey Musgraves. And I've learned so much from them that I feel like 97% of my brainwaves are thinking about my podcast and what I'm learning each and every day. And I don't take it for granted that I feel so passionately about something. Well, I'm so excited to be able to dive in with you today. You know, I really wanted to focus our conversation on how to navigate challenging moments through decision-making. One of the coolest things that I found of your story is that you found your purpose at such a young age, which not a lot of people do find that. And we have a similarity. I mean, I might have not found it at the age of nine, but I did find it very young. And I do think it gave me a sense of self and grounding at a very young age. Can you talk to us a little bit about your experience of being accepted to such a prestigious Juilliard school, you know, and working under such renowned masters of violin? at such a young age, what that experience was like for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So when I was six years old, my mom went up to our attic and brought down my grandmother's violin that she had brought with her all the way from India when she immigrated uh, to this country in the 70s. And she just meant to show it to me. But we opened up the case and I pulled it out and I played a few notes. And she said, she said I was filled with so much awe and and wonder, which was pretty unusual for her to see, um, you know, the youngest of four kids. And so to to, to see that passion in, in such a young child uh, was rare. And so that kicked off um, my journey playing the violin. I became very serious about it very, very quickly. And it was interesting, Haley, because my family had no connections to the classical music world. So I... My dad's a theoretical physicist. My mom helps immigrants get green cards to work in this country. They had no connections. And uh, one day, my mom and I were just walking in New York. I had my violin with me. And she said, Maya, why don't we just go into the Juilliard school? I'm like, Bob, get out of here. That's nuts. Why don't you just go into the Juilliard school? She goes, well, what's the worst thing that can happen, right? We don't know anybody there. Let's just go in and, and see, uh, see what we can do. So I begrudgingly followed her into the building. And she ended up striking up a conversation with a, a student and her mom in the elevator who very generously agreed to let me play for her teacher after her lesson was over. And I ended up auditioning for this teacher on the spot. He accepted me into a summer program. It's kind of a boot camp for violinists. And um, that fall, I ended up auditioning for Juilliard and getting accepted. And I really credit my mom uh, with with allowing this opportunity to unfold because I think had it not been for her boldness and her willingness to just open this door for us uh, that had not been open to us, I would never have had a chance of getting in. Um, And so that taught me a really valuable lesson from an early age about the fact that, you know, when an opportunity doesn't exist, you just try to create it for yourself. Mm, well, I think that that's a great point. I mean, I think a lot of us um, forget that sometimes there's that fear of the unknown. So we don't want to go and we don't want to chase the thing because we're scared of that door closing. What I always say is that that door closes, it actually teaches you a valuable lesson of where you need to go next and what door is going to open and how you're yeah. going to open it. And to not be fearful of actually the failure that may come along the way of success and to take those chances and to never feel like you're lower than because you haven't experienced that or you aren't in that that field just yet, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I want to touch on something that was a huge 
really big pivotal point for where you are today is because at the age of 15, you then did suffer a tendon injury to the hand, bringing your aspirations and chances at a musical career to a sudden unfortunate stop. And I can't imagine what that was like for you emotionally, but also emotionally at a pivotal point as a teenager, when you're just starting to kind of figure out yourself and your bearings and you probably just started school and you're like, this is an amazing opportunity. And then all of a sudden something so tragic happens. So what was that like for you within your mental well-being journey? And do you remember that at a very big point in your life? Yeah, I remember it extremely well, uh, which is shocking because, you know, it happened 20 plus years ago. Um, but yeah. it's such such a fresh memory in my mind because it just carried so much emotional significance for me, right? So mm. up until the age of 15, I was singularly focused on becoming a violinist. Every single day was devoted to this craft. I'd come home from school, rush upstairs, practice. I mean, it was... Looking back, it's like, where did I get that motivation from? I don't think I have that today, you know? You loved it, uh, But I girl. loved it so much. Exactly, Haley. So uh, I, it's, it, when I was a freshman in high school, I remember things took um, an even more intense tone because Itzhak Perlman, who is, you know, arguably the greatest violinist of our time, invited me mm. to be his private violin student. And that yeah. was when I realized wow, okay, this amazing, incredible legend of a violinist sees potential in me. And Mm. so, you know, of course, you fight all sorts of imposter feelings when you're in such a highly competitive environment like Juilliard. But I felt like his vote of confidence gave me the confidence that I actually maybe had what it would take to go pro. Um, So I was just, you know, on that path where I'm thinking for the first time ever, like, I got it, like, I can do this, you know. And then I'm, I'm, I wake up early one morning at summer camp and, I, I guess I didn't warm up fully. I'm not really sure what happened, but I heard a pop in my hand. And uh, I had torn tendons in my hand. And fairly soon after, doctors told me I could never play the violin again. And mm. I just remember being devastated. As you mentioned, when you're that young, you're just figuring out who you are. And you haven't always asked all these big existential questions in life yet where you're like, you know, who am I? What am I without the violin? What I am? What am I without this thing that I love more than anything? And then mm-hmm. suddenly it was like I, you know, was hit by a freight train, which was, OK, well, you don't have the violin anymore, so you better discover who you are without this. And, you know, I'm a cognitive scientist and there's this interesting concept in psychology called identity foreclosure. And it mm-hmm. basically refers to the fact that adolescents certainly, and, you know, this can even continue into adulthood, can tend to feel very fixed in their identities um, Mm. and can lead them to not explore lots of other avenues or or other pursuits because they lock in very early on a certain identity. And that's certainly what had happened to me at age 15. Like, even before I was me, I was, before I was Maya, I was a violinist. That was like my first descriptor. And so what that experience forced me to do was to fight this identity foreclosure and think of myself as a, a, you know, fuller person who had many other traits and potentially many other passions and then explore what those could look like. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
You know, one of the things I always say as well is I think we forget that we're always ever-evolving beings. So our ever-evolving purpose can change as well. Mm. And a lot of people don't look at it with that point of view, right? They think my purpose is this. Finally, I found it. And that's going to be what it's going to be like for the next years, years, years. And a lot of people say, you know, find what you're good at, focus on that and don't look at anything else. So I think it's kind of what we're taught when we're that age in some capacity as well Is we're taught to say like, focus that one path, don't go down the other, just focus, focus, focus. But what you're saying is actually it allowed you to start to see outside yourself that there were other possibilities and other purposes that you could lend your voice to. And that's exactly what you went down, right? Yeah, that's very well said. And it's an insightful point. I think, um, what you're saying is exemplified by the classic question we ask young kids. What do you want to be when you grow up? As though mm-hmm. there's one thing they should be when they grow up and they should have decided it when they're a child. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sending the wrong message to children about just how malleable their identities can be. Um, I will say that, you know, even though I discovered the field of, you know, cognitive science and how the mind works and whatnot shortly after I hurt my hand. And that sent me down a whole new path of getting my PhD and whatnot. I, I, I didn't define myself in terms of cognitive science. Instead, what I did is I tried to identify what are the traits of this activity, of this new interest or pursuit that means something to me, that light me up. And I realized, okay, well, one thing is that I'm fascinated by humans generally, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it helped me to realize that's my defining characteristic is that I love human beings. I love emotional connection. I love human connection. I love discovering, you know, what it is, Haley, that makes you tick. And I want to hear yeah. about what your young hobby was as a, as a, as a young I, kid, I you know? I I'm the exact same way. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that it's such a, it's a wonderful thing to hear that from another person and know that you can validate yourself in it because I think at the beginning, of my career, let's say, what, 10 plus years ago, it was very much, you could only be an actor, 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 actor. And when I wanted to get into modeling, I had a huge kind Mm. of fear of the unknown moment that happened to me where I was like, I'm going to now leave my acting manager because they see only see a tunnel vision and go and find somebody that will understand that I am multifaceted, that I love different things. And I, they all sort of connect to each other in the bigger scheme of it all. They do in a bigger way. And uh, I'm so glad that I did. I think that's great, and I think we should lean into that. And as soon as I discovered that I love human connection and actually that my love for the violin was as much due to the beautiful sounds my instrument was creating as much as it was having the ability to forge an emotional connection with my audience, right, when I was performing the violin, that helped me to see, well, there's so many jobs that involve human connection, right? So, or some element of human discovery. And so, you know, when I was an academic studying this, from an intellectual perspective, right? Running research, publishing papers. Well, I'm discovering fascinating things about the mind. And then when I move into the public sector and I work for the Obama White House, now I'm helping and I'm meeting with veterans and service members and low-income students and principals and residents of Flint, Michigan. And again, there's this incredible emotional connection that can form between you and other people. And then even for my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, that same feature is present, right? I, I I'm making this podcast all about human change because I'm fascinated by people's stories and I want to understand how it is that each person has chosen to navigate the twists and turns in their life. And I think 
Oh, sorry. It's also, no, no, I was just going to say, just to touch on that, it's an amazing example to show the evolution of our purpose, right? Because mm-hmm. you're talking about all these different things that you've done and how you've then related it back to the bigger purpose, but you've allowed yourself to change along the way in order to evolve with who you are becoming and your self-awareness and your self-growth, which is a really great thing to tap into, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I think when we identify, again, features of something that make us love that thing, Mm. then it feels scalable, if that makes sense. It's like, well, I can find this in other pursuits. I can find this so that if you end up losing something like the violin, but you learn that the thing that made you love the violin was connecting with humans, you can feel some sense of hope. And so Mm. I would urge all your listeners, if they're confronting a big change in their life or, you know, if they've been forced to pivot in in a moment where they don't want to pivot, they can just try to figure out, okay, what is it that I loved about playing softball? What is it that I loved about being a dancer? What is it that I loved about being a teacher? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is that there was their passion, they could potentially rediscover that in something else. And so you obviously went into being a cognitive scientist, but how did you get there? Was that influenced by your family? I know you touched on it before, but your dad's a physics professor and your mom's an international scholar advisor. Did that influence sort of your idea of, okay, well, let's put the two together now and see maybe my parents' love for what they did mixed in with my love for just speaking to humans and being able to just connect with people could kind of come together in some, some beautiful form. I mean, I wish 15-year-old Maya had been so intentional and thoughtful (laughs) about her choices, but absolutely not. What happened really was the summer before college, I was helping my parents clean out their basement, as a dutiful daughter does. I was supposed to be touring in China uh, with my fellow musician friends, so I was pretty bummed that summer that I was home in Connecticut. As much as I love my folks, I obviously wanted to be somewhere else. But I was helping them clean their basement, and I stumbled upon a book on the science of how the mind works. Mm. And I opened up the book and I started learning about our ability to acquire language and our ability to make complex decisions. And I had that awe moment again. The one that my mom described when we first opened up my violin, I I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I've always taken all these cognitive abilities for granted. And now, now I'm having this author pull the curtain back and teach me about how it is that we do these miraculous things as human beings each and every day. Like, mm. I think we can be so hard on ourselves as people. Oh, why don't I have this personality? Or why do I have this annoying trait? If you study cognitive science, you will feel you're crushing it all the time. Let me tell you, because our, <laughs> our, our day-to-day behaviors are the result of such extraordinary, complex, sophisticated machinery. It, you will find yourself in awe of the human experience and maybe a little bit less willing to criticize yourself for these small things here and there. And so that propelled my interest in studying this field generally. So I went to college. I majored in cognitive science. Uh, I ended up getting my PhD and then a postdoc um, in the field. And all throughout, you know, the focus of my research was why are humans wired the way they are? How are humans Mm -hmm. wired? Uh, Mm -hmm. And what can we learn about the way that we make decisions and the way that we behave based on these research studies? What I want to start off with is, can you just explain to anybody who's listening what cognitive science is? Absolutely. Yes. So it is the study of how our minds work. And I specifically study how and why we make decisions and how we develop our attitudes and beliefs about the world. And what this research shows us is that we're often influenced by some very surprising factors that Mm. ought to not influence our decisions in the first place. So a good example of this is, you know, we're all familiar with going to a restaurant, we get a menu. Turns out we're much more likely to choose the first item on the menu. 
than we are to choose items lower down. Now, in the context of a restaurant, fairly low stakes. But in the context of voting, this can have a profound impact. The order in which the candidates' names appear on the ballot can exert an outsized influence on voter behavior. And so they found in Texas that when a candidate's name was listed first on the ballot, that candidate received a 10 percentage point boost in vote share, which is an enormous advantage in the in the context of any election. Um, And so what it's led people to do is, and systems to do, is uh, randomize the order in which the candidates' names appear across ballots. And so when we identify these surprising features of our own psychology and these kind of like hidden factors that are influencing us each and every day, it can help us design systems that are more equitable and that are reflective of our best understanding of human behavior. Well, I know that, you know, you served as chair of the White House Behavioral Science Team and President Obama issued an executive order in 2015 titled Using Behavioral Science Insights to Better Serve the American People. What did you find from this and how did it actually roll out afterwards? Yeah, working for President Obama was obviously an incredible highlight of my life. I feel incredible gratitude that I was able to work in the government, and work to translate insights from my field into improvements in people's lives. Um, So the team that I built when I was in government was called the Social and Behavioral Sciences Team. And Mm. the whole idea behind it was that if we can take all these insights from our field, right, all these these findings we have about how it is that humans act and behave, and then we can translate them into the design of public policies or programs, it could be make or break for people in their lives. So a good example of this is I worked with the Department of Veterans Affairs to try and boost enrollment in a educational uh, and employment benefit that vets were eligible for when they returned from their years of service. And it's a really important benefit because, as you can imagine, veterans face a really tough transition as they reassimilate into civilian life after having been in military life for so long. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, not enough vets were taking advantage of the program. And that was on the government. Like, we hadn't done a good enough job advertising it. We needed to make it more compelling. And so what we did is we ended up changing just one word in a marketing message about the program. Instead of telling veterans they were eligible for the program, we simply reminded them that they had earned it through their years of service. Mm -hmm. And this one word change led to a 9% increase in access to the benefit. And it's based on this principle called the endowment effect in cognitive science, which basically says we value things more when we feel that we own them or have earned them, right? So this Mm -hmm. mug that I have here, right? It's like this mug is worth more to me because it's actually in my possession and I own it. And so when veterans feel this is a benefit that I own and now I have something to lose, uh, they're much more motivated to sign up. And so... That's just one example of how a very small tweak in the way that you frame a message or the way you structure a program can have enormous impact on people's lives. Well, I mean, taking it from something as big as the government and as big as, you know, being able to tap into mass population and taking it just straight into identity and yourself. One of the coolest things that I do want to tap into is behavioral science. You talk about social identity priming. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we are so heavily influenced by how the people around us behave and act. It's kind of extraordinary. There was one study they ran where they were trying to motivate people to use less energy. And they tried all sorts of tactics, like all sorts of incentives to try to get people to use less energy, right? Financial incentives, knocking on doors, you know, canvassing, hanging little posters here and there. 
The one thing that worked at getting people to use less energy was to tell them what their neighbor's usage was like. And when they found out that their neighbors were in some cases using less energy than them, it was very effective at getting them to use less energy themselves. And so we do find time and time again that if we do know there is a healthy social norm out there, right, yeah. that the data aligns with what we as a society would hope for, right? More people, um, you know, more kids doing their math homework or more people voting, or in this case, more people caring about the environment, we can use that data, those statistics, to actually motivate positive behavior change in others. You know, one of the things that I speak about so often is when it comes to your own identity, right? And being mm. able to peel off sort of the leeches of other people's opinions that have then come over time that you then start to believe that are your own. And especially in the body image and self-image world, we talk a lot about society's beauty standards and being able to sort of rewrite what that looks like for you and your mm. own relationship with your body really comes from starting to see yourself through your own eyes. How can somebody start to change that in a behavioral science approach and taking away, you know, the blockers that are coming in consistently because other people are inflicting their own opinions or perceptions of yourself. Yeah, it's so interesting that you bring up this example because it reminds me of an interview that I did for A Slight Change of Plans with a woman named Elna Baker. Mm -hmm. um, she believed in her life that if she could just become thin, if she could just lose weight, all of her life dreams would come true, right? She would able to be able to live her her absolute dream life. Yeah. And so she did it. She ended up losing um, close to 100 pounds in five and a half months. And for a while, she did think that she was living a better version of her life. Things were coming more easily to her. She was dating all these guys that she hadn't been able to date before, et cetera, et cetera. But then she slowly started to realize that she was actually becoming a worse person. She mm -hmm. felt herself becoming more superficial. She felt that she was not treating people as nicely as she had before. She felt before that, you know, she cared so much about belonging. She was bringing, it was bringing out the best in her, right? And that in this new Elna world, um, she was just getting things easily. And it made her disenchanted with society. And it forced her to realize, you know, I may have lost all this weight, but I actually feel like I've lost core parts of myself that I valued a lot, right? Like she found herself being more self-conscious and less bold than she had before the weight loss. And so what that story taught me, and I think will teach listeners, is that change doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? We can really hope, oh, if I can, you know, I'll be Maya, I'll just be this better version of Maya. But actually what Elna taught us is that when you change one part of your life, there can be all sorts of spillover effects into other parts of your life that you simply can't predict. And so you have to have a sense of humility when it comes to confronting change, um, especially change related to body image. And I think El Elna's ultimate discovery was actually losing weight was not the answer to her problem. The actual issue is that she was unhappy. And mm -hmm. so years of therapy is what ended up helping her problem, like actually understanding what was at the root cause of her her sadness. And I think it took this pretty gut-wrenching experience for her to learn this very valuable lesson about what actually constitutes self-worth and value. Yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of a story of a friend of mine who actually, she lost a ton of weight, became a bodybuilder, and then wrote a book afterwards about her journey actually becoming a bodybuilder was actually more detrimental to her just allowing her body to go where it was meant to be because mm. it was really about her connection to who she was that she needed to be able to work on to then feel grounded again, moving forward and what she wanted to do with her purpose. I wanted to sort of ask you, do you think these behavioral you know, changes 
changes or these ideas of how we look upon our purpose really inflict on our mental well-being journey just in general. Yeah, I mean, another thing that I learned from Elna's interview on A Slight Change of Plans is that what was actually at the core of a large part of her identity was the constant need to to optimize and improve Mm. herself. And I remember asking her at the end of the interview, you know, you spent all those years going through hell trying to lose all this weight. And now you're going through all these years in in therapy and self-help. And she said she's read every self-help book under the sky. She's seen yogis. She's done psychedelics. Like she's done the whole whole process of trying to engage in self-actualization. And I, I asked her, I said, do you actually feel that maybe in part you're like addicted to the idea of just changing yourself and that at some point you just have to be, right? You just have to like exist. And I do worry sometimes that our our culture is so focused right now on self-improvement um, that we do feel like unless we are that aspirational version each and every day, we're letting ourselves down and we're not worthy. And I, I just I couldn't disagree with that more. You know, I think sometimes just acceptance and and being willing to exist in this moment and appreciate what you have is, is the right way to be. I completely agree. I mean, radical acceptance is one of the things I preach about the most. Like, Mm. I think that it's so silly when somebody says that they're working for their future or they're working for the tomorrow. And it's like, well, let's work for the today that will then get you to the tomorrow. There's no need for you to look in the mirror while you're in this period of not knowing how to love yourself and to hate yourself in that period to get to loving yourself. Let's start tricking the mind to loving yourself today to then continue to love yourself even more tomorrow kind of thing. Absolutely. I know you speak a lot on, you know, how labeling can really affect people. And that's something that we speak about on this podcast, but most importantly, just in general, um, how labels really do limit somebody from looking outside of the box and really being able to then evolve with themselves over time as well. The way that we talk to another person and the way that we talk to ourselves really does influence our own perception. Mm -hmm. So can you explain to us a little bit more on why this is so important to discuss for your own personal sense of self? Yeah. I mean, I love the research on on identity priming. Basically, what it says is that we act in ways that align with the social identities that we either have in the moment or aspire to have in the future. And we can use labels very effectively in this way to inspire positive change, right? So, Mm -hmm. for example, the Red Cross ran some studies in which they reminded former donors to the Red Cross that they had previously been donors, that they had formerly donated, and that helped to inspire not only repeat donations, but increased magnitude of donations, right? So that's an instance where you can leverage people's former identities in ways that are really productive and positive and help them double down on those very positive identities. Mm -hmm. The challenge exists, Haley, when people are trying to move away from an identity and we hold them to that identity. They're trying to break free from it, but we continue to use labels that keep them in the past. There was an example of this when I was working in the Obama White House where we were designing reentry guides for people who had formerly been incarcerated. And when I was looking at the original version of this reentry guide with my colleagues, we noticed that, you know, words like ex-convict or ex-prisoner were all over the booklet. And it was so important that we help people see a new identity in their future. And so we used labels like community members or job seekers uh, because we were trying to make sure that, you know, for all those who are leaving prison, seeking out a new life, 
they have all the cards stacked in their favor, right? They can see this new identity and that society is supporting them, right? In finding that job, in assimilating back into their communities, in having a better, happier future life. And so I think it can be very important for us to be mindful of the labels that we give people because people can carry those labels around with them and can really stifle their ability to inspire change within themselves that they feel in some way locked to that former self. Of course. And I want to ask you, though, if somebody did say that a label came about when there's filling out a school form and they feel like they have only three options and they have to be able to pick one that's going to identify something to them. And then they walk away later and they go, you know, I don't like the fact that that identified with me. What can they do in that instant to be able to let that go and to really just be present and to know that that label does not define them. They define them to let that label go for a moment that there is a lot that needs to be changed in society still around labels and how we do project them onto other people without even asking them beforehand. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think seeing the self as not a stable entity, but as one that is in a constant state of evolution and change can allow you to disassociate yourself with with all former versions of yourself, including the one from five minutes ago, right? Mm. Um, Because we are constantly in a state of learning or adaptation or, you know, bettering ourselves in some way or another. And so I think if we can think of ourselves as these malleable entities that kind of float through the world. You know, certainly if you feel that there was something in your past that you're really proud of, you can try to attach yourself to that past self. But if you don't want to, I think it's very helpful for you to see yourself as, again, this very dynamic body that's constantly in motion. And sometimes it's going to get better. Sometimes it's going to get worse, but it's always Mm -hmm. in some way going to be different. Um, And that different is what allows you to build new identities in the world and see yourself through new lenses. I think that brings me to this wonderful thing of asking you, which I'd just be so curious about your answer, is more of, you know, how do we start to identify what our opinions truly are of ourselves? And how do we identify what others' opinions are of ourselves that have now been uh, attached to us through perception? Yeah, it's so interesting you asked that question, Haley, because I just before this interview, I was interviewing a Black trans man about his experience going through a gender transition. And he talks about how he had felt caged in a woman's body. Um, And Mm. that when he transitioned, you know, there's this period of liberation and freedom and actually, you know, seeing the benefits of being male in society and that people were deferring to him more and his voice was viewed as having more importance. And then the harsh reality of what it means to be a black man in society hits him in this really profound way one evening when he's pulled over by the cops. And he Mm. talks about being caged again, that he had been freed from this body, from this gender identity that he did not align with. But now society was caging him again. And what that experience taught him is that you can change on your own terms, sort of, but you can never control how other people perceive you and respond to you and what labels or identities they give you. And he said that the thing he relies on is knowing himself so well, understanding himself so well, that he can be the constant amidst all the change. He he talks about as flowing through change, right? Like accepting change as it comes because he knows he can't control it, but just being so So just having such profound conviction about who he is, that he can be that rock in the face of a lot of turbulence. I don't know if that resonates with you, but it was such a powerful message, certainly for me. 
I think it resonates with me in a different aspect, of course, in the sense of, uh, you know, being able to say that your own opinion of yourself is so worthy. Like, you know, as much as you want to talk about other people's validation for you, you have to validate yourself first. Mm -hmm. If you really want to be able to achieve what you're looking for in your life, whether that be something as small as just waking up in the morning and doing your daily practice is something as big as, you know, taking a test and being able to ace it. You want to be able to be that driving force of that validation for you, not for getting that validation from anybody Mm -hmm. else. Because when you are that driving force, nobody can come into that way to steer you the wrong direction. There's always going to be people in this world who aren't going to believe what you're believing. There's always going to be people in this world who are going to tell you that what you're doing is completely wrong. I've had to do that consistently on a basis of change when it comes to society standards of beauty. And now when we talk more and more about mental health, it's changing people's perception on that. You can live with depression. You can live with anxiety. You can live with social anxiety and still live a successful, beautiful life. Mm -hmm. So we are consistently changing people's ways of understanding that it's okay to be different and to also believe in what you believe without trying to steer anybody into a, a different direction. We all have our spaces in this world we all have the right to believe what we want to believe. And we all have the right to be able to say what we want to say, but you have to be your own cheerleader. And I think that's a huge, huge point. Um, you know, one of the other things that you do talk about is making sure that it's really important to be in your own driver's seat, that when you are in your own driver's seat, you actually have a more positive response to the decisions that we make for ourselves. Now, I want to tap into that, but more so on this sense of, that it really showcases to me that it, it's a really important thing to make yourself a priority because when you start to take ownership for yourself and you are in that driver's seat to take those decision makings without questioning the decision that you're making, you do have a more positive outcome. How can somebody get to that space? Yeah, I think humans really crave that kind of agency. You know, like you said, we love being in the driver's seat. There's some really interesting research in the field of psychology showing that when people were allowed to tweak an algorithm, like they had their own inputs play out in the algorithm, they were more likely to choose that algorithm over another one that they knew had better outcomes, but actually didn't involve their inputs. So that shows how mm. we can even make irrational decisions just to preserve our agency when it comes to you know the influence that we have. I mean, I think that when it comes to so I've, I'm of mixed minds when it comes to agency. And, and the reason is I both believe that we, we should be in the driver's seat at the wheel, trying to change mm-hmm. the course of our lives as much as we can. Certainly in my own life, there have been many moments where you know I've had to pivot or turn or create an opportunity for myself that might not have existed. But I also think that having kind of the sense in the back of your mind that so many elements of control are just an illusion and that Mm. there's so much of our lives that are just completely out of our control can help us live a slightly more balanced life. And I say this as someone who's obsessed with the idea of control. Like I've spent my whole (laughs) life trying to plan my future, trying to make sure that every step is mapped out along the way. I'm totally that type A personality. But I think over the years, confronting changes of so many kinds and seeing the world change in profound ways, like in 2020, both with you know, racial justice being front and center in our country mm-hmm. and also the coronavirus, right? Like we we as a as a world experience such profound change. I think it's important for us to always remind ourselves that those shifts might come and they might be really unexpected and that's okay. In fact, that was a huge motivation for me when it came to creating my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, which was 
I was feeling super overwhelmed by the rapid pace of change that was happening all around me. And I knew so many other people were too. But when I put on Mm -hmm. my cognitive science hat, it helped me appreciate that while the specifics of what 2020 threw our way were unprecedented, our human ability to navigate change is not. In many ways, our minds are built for change. And so I think, you know, if we can mine people's stories for insights on how to navigate that change, it can make us feel less intimidated in the face of it, right? So yeah, I I think my life philosophy has been get in the driver's seat, but understand that you only have so much power and control over how things end up and all you can change are your inputs. Well, we, like you just tapped on, we had a very, uh, you know, very profound year and a lot of challenges along the way. And I think a lot of mental health challenges that have surprised a lot of mm-hmm. people and within a mental health challenge before it gets to crisis, I think there's a lot of decision making. Um, and that's where, you know, you may be influenced to something that may take, um, may take your life away. So I I would be curious to know in behavioral science, is there a way for somebody to catch those decision makings into a prominent place of being able to know what to do before a crisis? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I definitely can't weigh in on on the first part of your question, but I can definitely weigh in on the second part, which is in Mm -hmm. my own life, I have found that I try not to wait for a crisis in order to feel like I can be vulnerable with the people that I love in my life. And I think the reason for that is if you wait until that true crisis moment, you've built up this huge wall that's really hard to break down because you have fear that's accompanying the crisis. You have anxiety, you have stress, you have uncertainty. And it's just a lot in that moment to say to people, oh my God, I have this horrible thing that's happened and I need your help and I'm feeling super weak and I'm feeling so much anxiety. Instead, if you if you have relationships in your life where along the way you share micro stresses, mini stresses, moderate stresses, you've opened the door to have those that kind of dialogue. And I think from a psychological perspective, if you've already opened the door and you've gone in and out over the course of the year, say with your best friend, then when you have to run into the door because like, you know, everything's on fire, it can feel less intimidating to do that. And it can feel... Um, you can feel less vulnerable doing that because you've already established a really trusting, warm, healthy relationship, hopefully, in which you've already shared um, some of the stress that you've experienced up until that point. Does that resonate with you? Has that been similar to your experience? I mean, I think that the most important thing even just about this podcast and why I started it, which was also in the beginning of the pandemic on an Insta Live series and then transferred over mm. to this, was more of, you know, being able to let somebody know that you're never actually alone. And in order to be able to identify with knowing that you're actually never alone, you have to start showing your vulnerability to people around yeah. you. Because when you start showing your vulnerability, somebody else wants to share their vulnerability as well. And it's a beautiful way for you to then make sure that you are opening up and validating what you have to walk alongside before it actually gets to a crisis. Yeah, I right? think that's right. And and sorry, one more thing I'd add to that is like, you can show that vulnerability in many, many parts of your life. So certainly in your personal life, you can you can share with your, your close friends or family, whoever it is, uh, your vulnerabilities. And like you said, in turn, it allows them to see that they can share those same things with you, right? It creates a safe yep. space for there to be an exchange of insecurity or vulnerability that supports both sides. But I've also found, you know, in my in my day job, right, I lead a team and I've been so intentional during the pandemic, uh, during our work mm-hmm. from home period to show when I'm not doing well, 
right? Yeah. Because something bad has happened in my family or, you know, my Chinese mother-in-law um, has been bullied at work because of the coronavirus, even though she's a frontline healthcare mm-hmm. worker or, you know, someone in my family is ill or I just feel like shit. I think it's so important mm-hmm. for leaders in any organization to not just role model positive behaviors, but to also show that kind of weakness and vulnerability, which, of course, as humans, we all experience. And I do hope that in signaling that, people at all levels of my team and organization feel comfortable also showing uh, that same side of themselves when they need support and love and help. Well, I think it starts to, you know, weigh into this idea of a leader, right? So if if a leader is showing their vulnerability in such a way, then it allows other people who may be looking after that aspirational leader to go, oh, okay, it's okay for me to share then Mm -hmm. too. And I can still succeed in the workspace and speak about things that are going on personally in my life. And I think this past year also has sort of given you, uh, given us this wavelength of professional and personal lives mixed in with two and the humanity that we bring into our professional careers and how we're able to see somebody beyond their title and more as just a human person and the compassion you can have for somebody and the work that you can do together on a bigger scale when that compassion actually is shown, right? One thing I do really want to tap into because mm-hmm. I thought it was super interesting and I think it's very important for people to identify with is the relationship that our memories have with the person that we are today. Um, You know, what does that necessarily look like for you? And I think for myself, it's a lot about my memories relate back to the inner child work that I do as an adult and how that reflects back into my mental well-being. And something that we always want to project more and more on this podcast is having you identify what of your past has brought you to your present in a positive and a negative way so mm-hmm. that you can understand how to be more present. Yeah, I mean, there's no one-size-fits-all on memory construction, but I will share one story that I think is uh, relevant to the to the question that you've posed, which is such an interesting one. So for a slight change of plans, I interviewed a woman named Megan Phelps Roper. She was part of a, a hate group, a cult, mm-hmm. a religious cult, that was causing incredible amounts of destruction in the world. Homophobic anti-Semitic, basically anti-everyone who was not in their church at a certain point. This is the group that would go to funerals of like gay military service members and protest them. They planned to go to Sandy Hook at one point to protest that funerals, those that set of funerals. Mm -hmm. So just absolutely god-awful stuff. Now I talked to Megan, um, who left the church in her mid-20s when she realized it was just not consonant with her worldviews and that she had to challenge everything she'd ever grown up with. I mean, her grandfather had started this church. She was an ardent believer. She was an ardent activist in the church. It was all she had ever known. And then when she was in her mid-20s, she decided to leave it all behind. And I talked to her about how she sees her former self, how she thinks about her childhood and her memories and old Megan versus new Megan, because to your point, what a stark example of living two completely different lives in one lifetime. And I just assumed going into this interview, this woman would have done everything she possibly could to forget her past and distance herself from prior Megan, right? Like, why would anyone in God's name want to remember that vile part of their past? But what Megan shared with me, which was to me so profound, is that she doesn't actually try to distance herself from past Megan too much because it helps her build empathy for those who also have very bad views about the world. And Mm. by being able to empathize with people who have been equally persuaded by bad ideas, 
she can double down on her commitment to help change their minds in the way that people had helped her change her mind back in the day. And I thought that was so fascinating, right? She said, if I were to run away from that identity, I would lose the empathy and compassion I feel for my former self. And as a return, I would lose all the empathy and compassion I feel for those I try to help now in my anti-extremist work. And so I thought... What an incredible story of someone who both believes what they've done in the past is, is god-awful and terrible, but she has some degree of equanimity where she's able to both believe that, but then also try and grow as much as she can from that former identity so that she can have a more positive impact on the world and change more people's minds. I think it also allows you to go like, you know, that period in my life, instead of condemning myself for it or saying that I... Um, you know, regret going through that process. It's learning about it's something about yourself and growing from it and going straight into this idea of evolution and how change can be a positive thing. How, you know, being able to evolve over time and learn about who you were in that period of your life instead of condemning yourself for it. Instead, you're looking at yourself going, that was a period of my life I'm not necessarily proud of because of what I've learned from where I am today. But that period of my life definitely defines something that has made me more purposeful to how I want to live my life moving forward. I know that the science of change taps into helping people make better decisions. Can you explain that a bit better and how we can really tap into that ourselves? Yeah, I mean, again, it totally depends on the exact decision that you're making. But I think what behavioral science teaches us is that There are some really universal biases that we all carry when it comes to how we make decisions. As I mentioned earlier, we're influenced by a lot of these very surprising factors when it comes to our decision making. And so if we can better understand the science of how we change our minds, and this is one of the things I explore on A Slight Change of Plans, I I talk about these science-based tactics or strategies that exist when it comes to changing people's minds, changing our own minds, informing our decisions, informing the way that we develop our attitudes and beliefs, we can actually take those insights and bring them back into our own lives. Um, So for example, I did two science episodes on the show. So it's normally a narrative show where I'm interviewing people about their life stories. But I've talked to two professors, uh, Adam Grant and um, Katie Milkman, about the science of change. And in those episodes, we do explore these very science evidence-based tactics um, for inspiring change within our lives and hopefully helping us to make better decisions and to achieve our long-term goals. We all know that this year has been really difficult for so many people, and I would be curious to know from the work that you've done in the past, how has this past year inflicted on the way society reacts to specific wording? I think the way that we frame messages can have a really profound impact on the way that we perceive information. I mean, certainly with the pandemic, we know from research, for example, that appealing to people's pro-social behaviors can be a really highly effective way of getting people to wear masks and engage in good COVID prevention practices. You might think, oh, the best way to frame the message is to say, Uh, This is in your best interest, Haley. Do this so that you can stay safe. But we do have, humans have good nature and we do like playing um, a role in society to make society better. And there's some very compelling research showing that when we do highlight the pro-social benefits, for example, of engaging in some of these behaviors, it can lead to, to better outcomes. And so I think In the same way that I talked about the veteran study, you know, very small tweaks to language can have a a pretty big impact on behavior. 
Well, I think this past year, you know, has shown us a lot of compassion in different ways as well. And I would wonder to you, you know, what are the coolest things is a domino effect, right? You can actually, when you start to make positive change in your life, you can then affect others to make positive change in their lives as well. Is that something you also speak about on your podcast as well? Absolutely. Yes. I think, um, again, part of my inspiration in, in making a slight change of plans is that when someone has tapped into this you know, treasure trove of wisdom or gold, and they have been able to successfully inspire change in their own lives, so many of us can take pieces of their story or their insights away with us and think about change differently in our own lives. I will tell mm-hmm. you, like, I went into this podcast thinking, oh, I'm a cognitive scientist. I understand change. I didn't know shit about change, okay? <laughs> My guests have taught me so much about the various facets of change, how inspiring it in yourself can lead to these really positive spillover effects to others and their communities. Um, and I have felt like after every interview I've done, I've left thinking a little bit differently about the way that I approach change in my own life. And it's had a very positive impact. And I won't say positive in the sense that, like, I feel great about change all the time because it's not like in the show we're wrapping up change in a little present and tying it with a bow. The whole point is to show the depths of complexity that humans face when it comes to change. And if we can share the dirty sides of it, the messy sides of it, the complex sides of it, then you can leave with a very rich understanding of what that change experience experience can be like for someone else and hopefully try and inspire, in the cases of positive change, a very similar type of change story in your own life. And with decisions, obviously, comes change. Do you think that we always have the right tools to make the right decisions for ourselves? Or is that sort of that same thing that we spoke about a little bit earlier, where, you know, you kind of are in the driver's seat, but at the same time, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to come into your way of you may make the wrong decision, but that's okay, because you can always steer yourself back into the right space for yourself in that period of life. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think our own psychology can lead us astray at times. As I mentioned, behavioral science can teach us that sometimes we do have biases that drive our decision-making in non-ideal ways. And if we can understand what those biases are, which is, again, something we tackle um, in my podcast, then we can hopefully make better decisions as a a result of that knowledge, right? But at the same time, Again, I study this for a living, and I still feel like I'm not making great decisions often because that's just the human experience. And like you said, life can throw a wrench into any plan. Life can throw lots of curveballs. And the key is just kind of appreciating and being okay with that fact and trying to build confidence that you know how to navigate and maneuver those changes. I love it. I mean, I think everything you've said today is so is so prominent to letting people know that it's okay to make mistakes along the way. It's okay to have challenges. It's okay to have changes in life. And sometimes those changes can actually be a beautiful, beautiful blessing. Now, I'm going to end this episode with a couple questions that tap into what make you you. We speak so often about building our personalized toolbox to lend to our emotional journey. And I just want to know, what served you in the last time you had a challenging moment or a flare-up? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that served me well uh, is something I had already touched on a bit, which was creating these really safe lines of communication between me and my loved ones throughout the course of, you know, the many 
changes that I've experienced over the past few years, such that when things got really challenging, I felt like I had a lot of safe spaces to talk about that stuff. And um, building these strong support systems around you that are open and available and accessible can just mean everything in those moments of crisis, especially last year when so many of us, myself included, just felt so isolated, right, and Mm -hmm. alone. Um, We lost so many of our physical social connections with those that we love. And so having robust emotional connections was everything last year, right? And like trying to simulate that over the phone or over a Zoom chat or what have you could could be make or break. And so I think relying on my community of um, love and support (laughs) was, was a game changer for me investing in that community as well, right? Because we need each other at different times. And so making myself available in many ways was just as important as my receiving that kind of support and help when I needed it. Amazing. And then if you could sum up your mental well-being journey in one word, what would that be? Wow. Um, I want to say gratitude, but that's so cliche. No, that's not at all. Gratitude. Yeah. (laughs) And then I just want to say, lastly, what what are the three biggest lessons you've learned in your life? These can be words, feelings, saying, stories, whatever authentically comes to your mind. Yeah. I think one is don't wait for a door to open. Mm -hmm. Try to open it yourself. Create the opportunities for you where they don't exist. Um, That has been a very empowering mantra that I've kept with me. Um, Two is try to work alongside amazing people. Mm. Uh, the thing that motivates me more than anything in all of my jobs and career choices and, and even in building this podcast is getting to work with exceptional people who yeah. teach me new things every day, who inspire me, who are just great, fun people. Um, and, you know, you and I bonded over this earlier on, but we're both really inspired by human connection yeah. and, and by people. And so making that a core part of my working environment has been core to, to my happiness. And then I think three is uh, spend time with children. <laughs> so I spent <laughs> time with my nieces and I have three nieces and I have three nephews. And uh, when when life can when life feels dark um, and things feel dark, just being around a child and having a conversation with a child can really transform your perspective and give you perspective. That's very needed. I love that. It's all about curiosity, isn't it? Because they're so curious. They they make everything so much better. Um, Well, I just want to say a massive, massive thank you to you for sharing your vulnerability, your insights, your knowledge behind all of this. Um, And if anybody is looking for you and wants to hear more of your conversation, not only can you check out our podcast, of course, A Slight Change of Plans, which is available on all podcast platforms. You can go over to her website, mayashankar.com, her Instagram at a slight change and our Twitter slight change pod. I thank you so much for everything. And I hope that we can continue this conversation again together one day soon. I would love that. Haley, you asked fantastic questions. You kept me on my toes the whole time thinking out loud. I really appreciate that. No, thank you so much. And if and if you're looking to continue the conversation around living an unapologetically authentic lifestyle, then this podcast is just for you. Our goal is to build a community in which you feel empowered to celebrate you by hearing inspiring stories of ownership to self. To always remember to leave with the three M's, that's mindfulness, movement, and mental engagement. You've got this, and we're here to support you along the way. So be sure to subscribe and download so you don't miss it 
an episode. It's okay to not be okay in your journey to become grounded in the power of you. Now, some of the topics we discussed today may have been triggering. If you're in need to speak to a crisis counselor, please text HOME to 741-741 or head over to activeminds.org slash mhresources for curated resources ready to hear from you. This has been a Stage 29 podcast production. The podcast is executive produced by Haley Hasselhoff, Patty Chiano, Laferne Cusack, and Stephanie Kaysen. Our audio editors are Jackson Ruff and Jonathan Dematty. Callie Kelts is the social media producer. And a special thanks to the rest of our podcast crew, Rwani Horinigay, William Cusack, Lisa Clark, Katie Brown, and Morgan Kaler. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice. Do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the host and the guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.